Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. You have crossed paths, uh, sometimes more in depth, sometimes not, with like this plethora of well-known right. people in show business. I mean, right. uh, how much of that is just the work that you do and how much of that is Steve Bluestein's serendipitous journey through life? Uh, well, I think it's a mix of both, you know. The, but like I was, I was in, I was, the, my Costco that's near my house, I'm, I'm in the toilet paper aisle and I look up and Fabio is standing there. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I turned around, I said, look, it's Fabio in toilet paper. And another time, this is a true story. Another time, um, David Hasselhoff is standing with his housekeeper and as I walk by, I hear him say, well, there must be someone here who can help us. And I couldn't help myself. I just said, let me get the concierge for you. <laughs> <laughs> Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mrs. North of South American, all ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in. Place your tray table in its upright locked position and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for... It is Thursday, May 17th, 2018, episode 264. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show. We've had countless authors on this show, and we love all of them, believe me. But this one, oh, this one is really special. Well-known comedian and television writer Steve Bluestein's book, Memoir of a Nobody. It's very simply a book that is flat out hysterical from cover to cover if you want to laugh long loud and often get memoir of a nobody at stevebluestein.net bluestein is spelled b-l-u-e-s-t-e-i-n there's a bunch of other places you can get it too including clicking the link for the posting on this show on the TomGullyShow.com. Now, this book is loaded with absolutely hilarious accounts of Steve's showbiz career, for example, opening for Barry Manilow, Donna Summer, Frankie Valli, Rita Moreno, and more. And I'm not doing it justice to just leave it at that. And then you got to throw in Steve's observations of his everyday life, which are also hysterical. 
we're going to talk about the funniest book I've ever read with the author himself, Steve Bluestein, tonight on the Tom Gully Show. Ladies and gentlemen, the chief hope of our enemies is to divide the United States along racial and religious lines and thereby conquer us. Let's not spread prejudice. A divided America is a weak America. Through our behavior, we encourage the respect of our children and make them better neighbors to all races and religions. Remind them that being good neighbors has helped make our country great and kept her free. Thank you. Okay, folks, buckle your seats. Uh, We're going to be talking with Steve Bluestein, and I'm telling you right now, he's a comedian, he's a writer, he's a playwright. If you follow comedy at all, you may have seen him on television many times, be it a talk show or a comedy show. If you don't follow those sorts of things, hey, maybe you saw him opening for Barry Manilow or Frankie Avalon or Rita Moreno or Frankie Valli or Mac Davis. Uh, He's here to talk to us about his new book. It's pretty new. Memoir of a Nobody. I'm going to tell you right now. It's the funniest book I've ever read. And if you think I'm blowing smoke, go back, listen to the 263 other episodes. I don't say stuff like that. I was laughing out loud at this book, and I highly recommend that you get it right now. The link is in the posting for this particular show. Or just go to Amazon, type in Steve Bluestein, and uh, you're going to be a very, very, very happy person. Steve, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank, that is the nicest thing anyone's ever said. I, I really appreciate that. Tell me specifically what you laughed at, because, you know, the comic in me always wants to know where the laugh is. There's so many things. Uh, the uh-huh. very, very first chapter. I mean, first of all, the story... The book is written in these great vignettes, these sort of short, bite-sized little vignettes that tell a longer, broader story. And each one of those little stories is funny in and of itself, okay? But you pack it with so many observationally funny things that there's not necessarily one thing I can take out of of any of them. I mean, Uh. the first entry in talking about this 2,000 pound or or maybe more garage door that's collapsed and I don't want to do a disservice to any of your stories but and having because of the way the door is fallen to hand tools into the guy that's fixing it I mean it's just funny non-stop every single and that day because every single story that's in the book is absolutely 100% true. And that day, the, what happened was the garage door fell on my car. And, and I was able to lift it up just enough to get the handyman in the garage. <laughs> and when I let it go, the door slammed shut and trapped him inside. And there's no other exit. I mean, there's no door out of the garage, but the door that you drive in, you know, the big door that you drive into. So he was trapped inside the garage (laughs) and he couldn't, and he couldn't get out. And, and I had a, and I had to hand him his tools through a tiny little crack in the door. And, and he was there for about six hours because there were no lights. He was working in the dark. It was hilarious. 
you know, and then in the meantime, you know, I have a four-story house here, and so I was running up to my office to get stuff, and he'd be calling me on the cell phone (laughs) (laughs) just to let me know he was still alive, and and then all this other stuff was happening at the same time, and, you know, and it's so funny because people read the story and they laugh like you do, and I read the story because I've read it, you know, maybe 200 times now. I read the story and I go, I don't understand what people are finding funny here. But obviously they're finding it funny because we have 19 five-star reviews on Amazon. Well, it is funny. I'm 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 sure it wasn't funny to you at the time. And we'll get to some of the other things. But even the garage doctor and the way, I mean, maybe it's not funny to you. It might not be funny to people listening to us talk right this second. But in the story... Your talent as a comic comes through. The writing is brilliant. But just the way you approach the fact that, yes, there is a place called Garage Doctor. I know. There was. There was. It was, it was the Garage Doctor. And when I called and she said, they said, the doctor will be there in a few minutes. I got hysterical. I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever heard. You know, the doctor is. The they carry the doctor. bit all the way through. Does he give you like a diagnosis and a script? <laughs> he does give you a diagnosis, and, and you know, and then you tell him if you want to do the stuff, and they they did it. They they did fix it, and it's remained fixed all these years later. So the doctor was the doctor was good, but um, I bet you I bet you they don't even know that I've given them all this advertising. Well. The garage. The garage door doctor. Maybe well, HIPAA laws, I would think, would prevent you from talking oh, about yeah, this. Oh, yeah, right, right, uh, right, exactly. But maybe we'll get to your house again in another of, I think, just a hysterically funny story, which is, and you can go into it whenever you want, man. This is yeah. this is your, you know, I'm not steering this boat. I'm just rowing it, okay? <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, this story of having gotten direct TV <laughs> and, and, and you're being in your house. I'm sorry. It's just so incredibly funny. Well, it's, it's and again, another true story. I wanted to get satellite t- for my house. So I went to Radio Shack and I said to Habib, I said, uh, is it easy to install? Oh, the, thank you very much. It's so easy to install. You will have no problems whatsoever. I get it home. I open the box. And the first thing, the very first thing it says in the instructions is locate the satellite in the northern hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I am so screwed. So, so I call DirecTV and 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 th- this is the conversation. It's almost verbatim. She says, "Sir, several people have called us, telling us that they cannot find the satellite in the northern hemisphere. And my supervisor has asked me to ask you, the customer, what we could do to make it easier to find the satellite." And I said to her, "Put a bell on it. How the hell do I know I'm supposed?" <laughs> Put a light on it. Maybe that'll help. <laughs> so then, so then she's she's giving me all these. Ins- I, meanwhile, I'm on the roof of my house. I'm on the roof of my house, and she's giving me all these instructions, and she's telling me what to do. And she says, she says to me, "So do you have a picture now?" 
And I said, how do I know? I'm on the roof. And she says, oh, you live alone? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I have to get married to get direct TV? <laughs> you know. Oh, oh God. It's, it, it's... And it's... Uh, it's all true. It's every every word of it. It's uh, it's the funniest book. I'm telling you. It's just every single one of the stories. And that's not to say that there aren't some very heartfelt parts of the book. But as I told you, it's like, yeah, I skimmed over those. I just wanted yeah. the funny part. You know, those. Yeah, your personal tragedy. Yeah, okay, fine. But uh, the the Estelle Harris comes to dinner. And yeah. for those who don't remember or don't know, Estelle Harris is famous for. Uh, being uh, uh, the mother on Seinfeld, she was um, Jason Alexander's mo- played Jason Alexander's mother on Seinfeld. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, you know, from all your other stories, I would have imagined you would be this incredible cook. You know, with your attention I, to I, detail I, and anal retentive, and I can't boil water. Do you know that I put a picture of toast that I burnt? on Facebook and got 475 likes because <laughs> everybody, because I've been posting pictures. I kept, cause I, 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 I keep burning the toast and I don't understand why. And so every day I would burn a bagel or I would burn toast or a, a, a croissant and it, I, they'd be black, absolutely black. And I post a picture of it and people, people would be sending me suggestions like, do you know there's a timer on that thing? And if you set the timer, now, and they'd be talking to me like I'm an idiot. You know, look on your toaster. There's a picture of, of a toast that's white and a toast that's black. Now, if you put the dial in the middle, <laughs> you get really good toast. And I would go, I, I've been to college. I know how to make toast. <laughs> I, I just can't. What happens is I put the toast in, and then with my, you know, with my um, uh, obsessive compulsive OCD personality, I go, oh look, shiny things, and I'm off in another room, you know, painting, and, um, and then suddenly the smoke detector goes off, and I go, oh, the toast is done. <laughs> <laughs> it's- they treat you like you're Fredo, you know? You're like, I'm yeah. not dumb, I'm smart! Not like everybody <laughs> says. You know, and and, and they... And uh, the, somebody, said, somebody said, don't you have a timer on your on your toaster? And I said, yes, it's called a smoke detector. <laughs> the well, funny, you know, we, the... I actually had a fire in the house. I, I, I you know, I... I've had this house 20 years. The stove, the, the stove was about 10 years old, and it looked brand new. The inside had never been used. And my housekeeper was here, and she cleaned under the stove with the Swiffer, and she caught the wiring and, unbeknownst to her, pulled it forward into the pilot light. So the next time I turned on the stove, the entire bottom of the stove caught fire. And the the whole kitchen was filled up with smoke, and I, you know, really billowing smoke. And I said, "Am I making toast? What, <laughs> what what's going on here?" I well, I went to the to- first thing I did was go into the toaster oven. So <laughs> I I looked into the into the stove, and I saw this glow from under the stove. And I pulled out the drawer, and this flame shot out. 
and uh, I have wooden floors in the kitchen, and if I had not been home, I would have burned my house down. So I stay out of the kitchen. So that was a $4,000 weekend, because after I you know, cleaned up the mess from the stove, I put everything in the dishwasher to clean it, and the dishwasher flooded the kitchen. And, you know, this is how my mind thinks. I said, you couldn't do this when there was a fire. We would have killed two birds with one stone. (laughs) The Estelle Harris story, it's like one disaster after the next. She's there with her husband. Um, Her poor husband, who is the nicest man on the face of the earth, they they came to dinner, and and everything... I don't want to ruin it for the readers, but for everything that could have possibly gone wrong with that meal went wrong, and including me cutting the meat and it's and the knife slipping and a piece of meat shooting across the table into into her husband's lap. It was you know, and then at the end of the evening when we were when we were having you know just having sitting around talking, this, suddenly there was this gigantic crash in the kitchen, like a, you know, like it sounded like a plate glass window had been broken. And I went into the kitchen and I had a big turkey platter that was on the top in the kitchen, you know, the open shelves it was on the top shelf and it had fallen off the shelf and smashed into a thousand pieces on the floor. And Estelle said, what was that? And I said, it's the dishes, they're committing suicide. Well, there's another super funny line from that, and you're going to know it, obviously, a lot better than I will. I don't know if I should spoil it or not, but it it actually made me howl with laughter. Tell me me the setup. Well, you guys are there for dinner. Yeah. And you deliver the line about, you know, uh, hey, after this. Why don't we go out for dinner? <laughs> you know, I, I actually said that after, you know, after that line, we all, you know, we all laughed. But one time I was after that, after Estelle was at the house, I was at one of these fancy Beverly Hills um, restaurants where a steak is the size of a, of a, a postage stamp and the carrots look like, you know, like they're an inch long, you know, it's one of those new nouvelle cuisine restaurants. And, uh, and it, the plates are like $125 at dinner, you know, like that, one of those places. And so he puts the food down and he says, uh, how is everything? I said, Oh, it's delicious. And when we're finished here, we're going out to get something to eat. (laughs) (laughs) He was so so insulted. It's probably a good time to point out that this book is absolutely filled with a phenomenon I've become familiar with, with uh, people from Los Angeles. And I think even more so in your case, from all your travels, from your Uh college experience to living in New York, which is you have crossed paths, uh, sometimes more in depth, sometimes not, with like this plethora of well-known people in show business. I mean, uh, how much of that is just the work that you do and how much of that is Steve Bluestein's serendipitous journey through life? Uh, well, I think it's a mix of both, you know. The but like I was, I was in uh, the, I was the, my Costco that's near my house. 
I'm I'm in the toilet paper aisle, and I look up, and Fabio is standing there. <laughs> I, said, I turned around. I said, "Look, it's Fabio in toilet paper." And another time, this is a true story. Another time, um, David Hasselhoff is standing with his housekeeper, and as I walk by, I hear him say, "Well, there must be someone here who can help us." And I couldn't help myself. I just said, let me get the concierge for you. (laughs) 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 You know, it's like I have I have what they call hoof and mouth disease. I there's there's not even a reaction time. I I just something I see something and without even thinking, my mouth opens and something like that comes out. And I don't know where it comes from or. Or, or how it's formed, but it just happens, you know, and, and it's, it's very advantageous on stage, but in real life, it <laughs> gets you beat up, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the, we talked a little bit about it, but, and I think it's something that probably you, you have to be from L.A. or know about it, but the, the Geary's sale. Yes. Well, Geary's is, is in Beverly Hills. It's a very, very fancy, fancy store where spoons are $300, right? You know, I wouldn't go. I, 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 I love the store because it's beautiful, and I get Christmas ornaments there every year. Uh, I give them as gifts. But they have once a year, they have a sale where everything is like 75% off. So, and they sell diamonds and all that stuff and, and, you know, dinnerware. And, and, and so, but it brings out the dregs of humanity into that store. It's, it's like a, it's like a riot when you go in there. And, and when I, when I went there, they had an old, uh, dot matrix printer. So when the girl was printing out, out the receipt, it was like, I said to her, look, I, I've got to be out of here by 11 tonight. Do you think we can get this done? <laughs> and when the, when, the, when the owner, Tom Blumenthal, who's the owner of the store, read the story in the book, he went out and all new printers for the store. <laughs> so if you go to Geary's now, they have all new printers at a fast. Oh, man. It's like the anti-Black Friday because, you know, on Black Friday, it's just, stuff right uh, and this stuff. is actually and, and legit high-end things oh yeah it's 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 dome it's it's uh um waterford it's waterford crystal it's all this stuff and um and it's all at, at incredibly incredibly low prices hey one thing that that struck me as i was reading the book was do you recall the first moment, and I'm not talking about the first moment that you got a laugh, say, in school or somewhere, but do you remember the, the moment, and I don't know if you maybe not experienced this moment yet, where you said to yourself, I'm funny? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, you know, if you look at the school yearbook, it says everyone signed it to the funniest guy 
you always make me laugh, you know. And I've always been that person who could laugh, could make people laugh. And even when the family was sitting around the table, uh, I would be able to make them laugh. And I had one aunt, my Aunt Shirley, who just passed away, who was my biggest supporter. She, she would laugh, you know, and she would tell me how funny I was. My mother, on the other hand, was not a supporter and was uh, uh, in the 40 or 35 years that I did stand up, never came to a show, ever. And, and that includes shows that were when I was on tour. I was on tour with Seals and Croft and I was playing in Florida and they didn't come and she didn't come. Well, why? I don't like Seals and Croft was the answer I got. <laughs> well, so so yeah. I, I, um, I, I always knew that I was funny, um, and I, the first the first real laugh I got is uh, I was very funny in college. I went to school with Henry Winkler, and uh, one night we were sitting at the in the Kappa sorority house, and there was an ironing board that had been left up, and somebody put a flip flop, you know, a shoe on it, and left it there. So Henry tosses this to me and said, Steve, do something with this. And I did 20 minutes with this flip-flop in the ironing board. And it was at that minute Henry came over to me and he said, that's a gift. And so I knew, I knew that I was funny. But the first time I actually stood on stage in front of an audience, after um, <clears throat> college I got a job on Cape Cod as a singing writer. <laughs> Right, where we right. had to do we, we had to do thirty five shows a, a week and bust the tables, and um, I was thrilled to get the gig, you know. But uh, one night we we went to Nantucket and there was a storm, and we couldn't get back in time for the show. So we got to the show, but we were very late, and the uh, the uh, owner of the club said, "Okay, Steve, you tell the people why you're late." So I began telling the story of what happened to us on the boat, and people, an entire audience, entire room, laughed at the same time. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I can do that, you know. And um, and that was the this that planted the seed that when um, Dave Dave Madden, the late Dave Madden said to me, Steve, you're very funny. There's a club that just opened up on Sunset called the Comedy Store, and you should go there. And he, the next night, brought me to the club. And when I sat in the audience and watched these guys on stage, I thought, yeah, I can do that. You know, that's a piece of cake. And that's, and that's how I started, you know. Well, Dave Madden, for those who, and, I, and this is going to be a reference, maybe they don't know, uh, Reuben Kincaid on uh, from the Partridge, the Partridge family. Yeah, yeah, and and in a million other things too. But you know that's what TV he was does. on Laughing. He was on the first season of Laughing, and yeah. yeah, he's and just a sweetheart of a man. Well, really. you know, you uh, have an interesting career in terms of the fact of many things, but you know, people don't realize that. In this day and age, we've got comedy clubs everywhere, you know, and if you don't have one in your town, 
they'll have a caravan come through and, and you know, the Hilton right, right. becomes Snickers for one night a month or whatever it is, and they'll have mm-hmm. professional comics come in. But most cities of any size have a comedy club, and that wasn't the case, you know, until about the time you were starting. I mean, there was, there was a couple places in New York and no. L.A. Uh, no. And when I started, there was one club in New York called The Improv, and the comedy store was the second, and there wasn't a comedy club in the country. Mitzi Shore, the late Mitzi Shore, she just passed away two weeks ago. Mitzi Shore created the comedy club industry as it stands today, with the design of the club, with the with the um, lineup of the club, with the light that goes on the at some player in the club so that the comic knows it's time to get off. Those are all Mitzi's ideas, and the. Um, I I was in on the ground floor to watch this industry because that's what it's become now is a comedy club industry. I was there and watched it being formed. And Pat Proft, who is a a writer, uh, wrote uh, Police Academy and uh, all the David Zucker films, you know, uh, uh, I can't think of one. Hot Shots. Hot Shot, yeah, Airplane. A police Academy, all those films. Pat was a, was a writer of those films. I, Pat was at the comedy store when we started, and I, and I used to say to Pat, we ought to be writing this stuff down. We ought to be writing it down. We're witnessing history here. And we would go, yeah, okay, yeah, you do it. Because we were so consumed with getting our careers started that we never thought that that what we were doing would become important and suddenly it became important and uh uh you know this the show uh, I'm dying up here is that show is to what was happening in the 70s to what I am to Swan Lake it is it has no relevance to what was happening back then it's strictly dramatization and we who experience those times look at that show and laugh, you know, for all the wrong at all the wrong places, because it just has it has no relevance, no relevance at all. Well, I found it interesting because one of the things I plan on talking to you about uh, as I began reading the book was the fact that you were on the ground floor of this transformation. I mean, even uh, Don Rickles would say. Mm-hmm. Hey, there weren't really clubs. There weren't really places to perform. You know, if, if you you right. get up in front of a dance a girl with a boa or something and, and have things thrown at you or whatever. But you were part of that thing that started what we today know as stand up comedy, a place where a guy goes and there's a faux brick wall and, right. you know, the whole thing. Yeah. And, well, you know, and let me tell you the the, the evolution of the, the faux brick, brick wall. The Improv was the first club in the United States, which just allowed people to get up and entertain. And it was in New York City, and it was on the uh, west side. And New York has all these old brownstones, and they were built with bricks. And if you lived in New York City, it was very prestigious to have an exposed brick wall. Well, the Improv had an exposed brick wall in the back of the stage. And so every club in America has an exposed brick wall. Uh, as their backdrop, 
and that's a, that's the where that came from. Well, the thing that I I found interesting, and and it surprised me at first, but the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. Was yeah, the industry created you know this this big groundswell of stand up comedy, mm-hmm. but it wasn't necessarily a good thing for stand up comedy. Well, it here's what I say now. My housekeeper can do 10 minutes. You know, it's become everybody who has, who thinks they're funny is on stage. And I, I was discussing this with someone else yesterday. When we started in the 70s, we were on the backs of people like Don Rickles, who got his start at the Catskills, who worked, you know, who worked those, those clubs. We got our start from people like, uh, Jack Benny and, and, and Danny Kaye and Red Skelton and those people who had a body of work in film and television and nightclubs and the beginning of Las Vegas. So we were learning from them. Today, comics are learning from comics. So the guy who works at the 7-Eleven goes to the comedy club and he watches the guy that's installs Venetian blinds and they all learn from each other. And so what has happened is that everybody, all these comics sound exactly the same. Their voice sounds the same. I don't mean the tone of their voice. I mean the, the voice of what they're saying sounds the same and it's not funny. And when, when, when they started learning that if you talk about, your groin and you fart that the audience will laugh, then their material became groin and fart material. Whereas the people who stood out like Elaine Boozler, like Jerry Seinfeld, uh, like Kathy Ladman, who were thinkers and whose material material was smart. Those people moved forward. But the rest, the rest of them, it's just like a big muck of garbage out there. And, and it's why the comedy club business is failing, because, um, first of all, they can see it on television with all the comedy shows that are on TV. So why should I go pay a cover and two drinks when I can watch it for free on television? And second of all, they're just not funny. And the people that are going to comedy clubs now for the most part, I'm, I'm making a general statement. It's not true in all cases. I'm sure people go, well, he's absolutely wrong. Um, is that uh, are the people who it's more, in, they're more interested in the alcohol than they are in the show. Right. You know, and, and I, uh, I, I had worked a wonderful club in Indianapolis and yes. it, it, the Indianapolis comedy connection. Yes. And I, um, and uh, Chicken Patty Perrin owned that. And they ran it like a family, and it was a wonderful place to, to work. And then they sold it, and it, it, it changed hands. And a new club owner took, took over. And I was treated with less importance than the beer. And, and I remember standing on stage with a drunk audience in front of me saying, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Right. I know how to do this. I know what it takes to make an audience laugh. I know the formula that it takes to make an audience laugh. And they've done everything to 
uh, destroy that formula because there is an actual equation to make someone laugh. You have to have X, Y, and Z to get a you know to get a a, a laugh, and they and they had taken away X and Y. So right. I said, you know, why am I doing this? You know, I, it's not like I need to learn. So that's when I turned to writing. You know, and that's when I I started writing television and. Uh, uh, and uh, then I wrote seven plays, and now I have these three books out. So, but the latest book, Memoir of a Nobody, is the biggest surprise to me because in the first week it was a bestseller, and I, I I'm sitting in my house going, "What are these people seeing? I I don't understand it." Oh, dude, that's uh, you're. You're, you're you're blinded by familiarity, I guess, because I think this, yeah, I'm too close to it. I'm this, just too close. This to book it. is it's just howling funny. Uh, little known fact: the very first place I ever did stand up comedy was the mm. Indianapolis Comedy Connection. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, yeah, and uh, I ended up becoming uh, just through sheer proximity uh, performing at Crackers in Indianapolis. Uh, most of the time and not quite as Which frequently. was the competition, the competition. Yeah, there were the two crack. clubs in town, you know, and right. then uh, another one got opened, uh, the Broad Ripple Comedy Club. But Broad Ripple, right. Uh, you know, the uh, the uh, Indianapolis Comedy Connection is the very first place, sort of that shotgun room, that long, thin room there. Well, yeah, uh, and, they, and the, the new owners changed the position of the stage. They moved it to the center, which is what I kept telling Chicken Patty it should have been for, you know, always, but uh, it was working for Chicken Patty. You know, the audiences were laughing, even though it was difficult for the comedians. Uh, it was, it worked, so they didn't move it. But the new owners moved it where it should be, and it made the audience more immediate to the stage, which is which was a good thing. Right. Well, so getting into some of the writing that you mm-hmm. did, and this is like. I don't know if it's a famous or infamous moment in television history, but the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. Oh yes, yes. I, I was I was fortunate enough to be one of the writers on the show voted fourth worst television show in the history of television. <laughs> I uh, I I had been signed to a huge agency, and they were sending me out on everything, and so I went out on this interview for the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, but they didn't tell me what it was. They just said, just go and meet with this guy. He's, he's doing a new TV show. He saw you on television and he wants to meet with you. So I said, okay. So I'm meeting and I'm, it was with Carl Kleinschmidt, who was the head writer, and also Ronnie Graham. Now, Ronnie was a famous uh, New York actor who was in the New Faces, uh, shows and was also the guy in the commercial. I'm dirt, you know, uh, about a gasoline commercial call, and he was the Mr. Dirt. Um, and so I met with them when we we're talking, and and they looked at my videotape and they laughed, and we were talking about stuff. And and I said, so uh, what show is this? <laughs> and Carl said, it's the it's the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. And as he said that, a little nap flew in front of my face and I grabbed for it, you know, and Carl thought I was making like a, uh, sound, you know, the uh, three stooges, uh, <laughs> Charlie Callis. Yeah. He, 
Yeah, right, right. And he, he thought I was reacting to the name of the show. And they, they both broke up hysterically laughing. And he said, you're hired. I said, you're kidding. I said, yeah. So there I was, never wrote on a TV show before in my life. And I got hired because I was making fun of the show. But everybody was making fun of that show. Bruce Valanche was one of the writers on the show. Terry Hart was another writer. And then there was another writer, Michael, not Michael Keaton, Michael, oh, God, I can't remember his last name at this moment. Anyways, this guy was a a pot-smoking chain smoker. And he... um, he had his own office on the other side of the lot because he was always stoned and they didn't want anybody. This is way before pot became legal. And so it was like four stoners were all right. Hi, honey, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's a good bit of marijuana smoking in this particular book. I just like to point that out for posterity's yeah, well, sake and the you know, front end of things. But it was, a, it was a different time. It was the 70s. It was the 70s, and, and everybody was smoking pot at that time. I, I, I would like to just state that I'm 36 years sober now, so uh, I don't smoke pot anymore. Although my neighbor smokes pot every day and it and it comes in through the walls of my house <laughs> and it's it's hilarious I, I told my friend I was sitting in the bathroom sucking on the sucking on the towels <laughs> trying, trying to get some, some pot out of it <laughs> oh my god um yeah. you know the the people you've worked with and and some of the people you worked with sort of on their way up like Kathy Griffin you're, you're right. Frankie it's some of these stories are true Hollywood stories of where someone saw you or uh, in, in Frankie Avalon's case uh you're well known for talking to the audience and interacting with the audience right. and you just you you lit him up and he thought it was funny and then you're opening for the guy uh, the Frankie Valley story where you're in the coffee shop and you've got apparently the sister of Sylvester the cat. Right, right. Uh, as said, your waitress. Good evening, welcome to the coffee shop. And <laughs> Frank, Frankie Valley and I were both stoned. And we they had these menus that were like three feet tall, you know, these huge menus. So Frankie's behind his menu and I'm behind mine. And the the, the woman comes in and says, Good evening, gentlemen. How can I get you something to, from the soda shop? And <laughs> I, 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 I started laughing, and I, I didn't want to laugh out loud, so I was, you know, I was holding it in, and I just look around my menu, and I see Frankie's menu is shaking, and we both had to get out of there. But you know, but you know, the wonderful, the wonderful thing of the strange thing with show business is that you work with someone for a week, you become their best friend. And then you never see them again. And that was always very hard for me, you know, to, because I'm the kind of person, I'm a person collector. You know, if there's somebody really wonderful, I find them and then they become a friend for life. I never let a friend go. And so it was hard for me to work with all these people and think that we were friends and then they were gone. Well, and that's, that's, uh, comes through in your book. And it's interesting that 
some people, and I've had very much the same experience in advertising at a very high level, is you go on these television commercial shoots and casting and everything else. So you're gone out of town, you're in a particular city for a while, and it could be two weeks, it could be six weeks. And for that period of time, it's like you grow so close to these people because you're with them together nonstop and you're working on the same thing and everybody's trying to do their best and you, you learn all their foibles and, and you have fun with them and, and you become really, really close. And some of them you'll meet later and maybe they've ascended to another position and they're the exact same person. And some of them, it's like, what is this West world who, who removed your right. faceplate and installed gears and right. circuits? Uh, a guy I got to know really, really well on his first national TV campaign was Michael Clark Duncan. And we just hit it off. And it was like for, for the whole shoot, it was like a four week shoot. People started coming to craft service when we would come down because we would like exchange lines of songs in mm -hmm. conversation you know, we would just bring up, well, you know, if you can't find your way back home, it wouldn't be fair. And he would go, well, precious and few of the moments we two can share, you know, and we would do this yeah, all the right, time. Right. It's stupid. It's not that funny. But but we just played basketball together, all this stuff. I was flying back to Indianapolis to get all my belongings and take them to Detroit, where the agency was and flying back out to California. And he says, I've got some papers that I need my mom to have. She's got to sign some things and stuff. Could you drop those off at her house? And I went, well, sure. I get off the plane. I get a U-Haul. I go by her house, knock on the door. Hey, your son sent me over. Here's the papers. Come in, have coffee, whatever. We go back. The guy never changed. Never changed. Absolutely never changed. And your book is full of, of those kinds of observations too. And it's... it's uh, I think it's it's an interesting thing uh, about entertainment that people think they, they the people that get to the top are so good at putting on that facade that you think that's who they are. And right, that ain't exactly. always the case. Exactly. I always say that uh, the 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 entertainer and the person are two different people. Uh, right. And 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 but you know the people we fly over they they buy the entertainment look that's how we got a president yeah two of them um you know we have two presidents <laughs> well ronnie you know ronnie was, was an entertainer oh, yeah. as yeah, well yeah. you know but least... and, and also and also uh schwarzenegger is governor of california I'm sure which which was the biggest myth that was ever created but you know the the you know, the, 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 the trailer park people say, I've seen him on television. I bet he'd be a good governor. You know, so it, it's just awful. awful. Yeah. Well, um, gosh, there's so many stories. I mean, uh, folks, get the book. Read about the Playboy Playmate Awards. I don't think we can cover it here. Um, but, but if you could talk just a little bit about the Penny Marshall birthday along with Carrie Fisher. Because that right. story is just like, oh my god! I, you know, my one of my dear friends was uh, Monica uh, Johnson. Now, Monica was a writer. She was the producer of Laverne and Shirley. But her real claim to fame was that she wrote all the Albert Brooks films: uh, Lost in America, Mother, uh, all his films. So, Monica and I have 
remained friends, you know, from the comedy store days when she was, you know, when she would hang out at the comedy store. And she had, she had this, uh, this someone at my front door. Can you? Yeah, go get you, it. I can edit all right. this. All right, hold on. Let me see who's here. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Bluestein, a celebrity extraordinaire, is taking a quick break to answer his front door. My new printer is here. My new printer is here. That's good. I thought it was the yes. garage doctor. No, it's not the garage doctor. Hold on. Let me just take this in. All right. I got it. Did I lose you? No, no, no. I'm still here. All right. I may have to keep this in. Steve's just like us people. He gets deliveries too. Yeah, I got I got my new printer. I got my new printer. I'm so excited. You know the wonderful thing about printers now. The printer is forty nine dollars. The ink is two thousand and seventy five. <laughs> it's like yeah. I, I said, it's like heroin. They get you hooked and then you can't go any other place. Yeah, yeah. They get you so, the one fix and then they charge you even more for the black ink because they know you're right, going to exactly. use more of it. So what were we talking about? We were talking about Penny Marshall and... Uh, oh, yeah. So, so Monica uh, was, you know, was the producer on Laverne and Shirley, so she was friends with Penny. Her brother, Monica's brother, was Gary, uh, was uh, not Gary Marshall. That was Penny's brother, but Gary Belson. That was Monica's brother. So she was in that circle of... Gary Marshall, Penny, Penny Marshall, you know, that whole uh, producer, writer, click. So Penny bought uh, W.C. Fields' house up in the hills. And every year, Carrie Fisher and Penny Marshall's birthday were about the same time. So they always held a joint birthday party. So... Monica calls me up, and she, Monica had this wispy, airhead voice, and she, she would say, Steve, it's Monica. Listen, do you want to go to the Penny Marshall party? It's the <laughs> last one. And I'm not exaggerating. It's exactly how she spoke. <laughs> and so uh, I said, sure. So, you know, I had never heard about this party. So I... I, you know, I'm in jeans and a T-shirt, and I'm going to a party. And she comes over to my house, and she goes, Oh, no, honey, no, 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 <laughs> no, change. <laughs> so I had to change. I changed my clothes to something better. And we get up to the house, and there's like 75 cars waiting at the, at, at the valet, you know. And uh, I said, Monica, she says, Oh, you haven't seen anything. So we we get our car parked and we walk down the driveway. We get to the front door and Monica turns to me and she says, "Okay, here we go." <laughs> I opened the door and it was it was like MGM exploded and it landed in Penny Marshall's house. Every major name in every sport in every every. Uh, the, uh, let me think if I can think. Um, all, every director, start naming some directors. Spielberg. Uh, well, I know Lucas was there from your book. George Lucas. 
the, the, the director of The Godfather. Uh, every Coppola, was, yeah. Uh, Coppola was there. Every, I looked over and I said, oh, look, there's, a, there's Magic Johnson. And somebody said, no, no, there are the Lakers. And I looked over and she was right. There was an entire table of just the Lakers. Yeah, well, the line that encapsulated it for me, I forget who the the big star was. It might have been De Niro or somebody was saying, was introducing Owen Wilson to somebody. Yeah, that's, yeah, De Niro, as I opened the front door, De Niro was saying, Owen Wilson, do you know, let's say, Barbara Streisand? It was like something like that, you know? (laughs) Oh, God. That's the first thing I heard as as I opened the front door. But, and the tables were like, people gra- you know, in show business, people gravitate to their own. So there were like a table of Academy Award winners, a, ca- a, cable, a table of Emmy Award winners. Then there was a table of sports figures. Then, you know, John McEnroe was there. Then there was a table of comedians. You know, every comedian in town was there. Richard Lewis, uh, Cindy Williams, uh, um, uh, Gary Shandling. I mean, ever. I mean, if you were anybody, you know, I said if a bomb went off right now in this room, I could have a career. <laughs> <laughs> well, that 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 story. It's just like it's 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 just one of the great stories in the book that you just like. I can't believe this, and you know it's true. It's just uh, it, it, it it was true, and and you know, and Monica would be taking me around the house, and she. Oh, that's the table that Belushi threw up on. <laughs> yeah, and the and of course Penny Marshall, a well-known sports fan. Uh, you describe her, you know, her sports collection is like you know it's like walking into the Hall of Fame somewhere. It's it was amazing. It was like there must have been two or three hundred signed baseballs and basketballs and footballs, and each one was in its own plexiglass. Um, cover and there were t- uh, shirts and and bats and, and you know and every sport thing that you could think of was in that was in that room. It was amazing. I'd never been in a room, and there must have been three or four hundred people at a party because the, the the house is on three levels and the bottom level opens up into a large. Uh, swimming pool area, flat area where the tables were set up, but everyone spilled over into the house. And I'm saying, how do you, you know, the next morning you wake up and you go, where's my coffee table? (laughs) What happened to the lamp in my bedroom? I mean, (laughs) 300 people, somebody's got to steal something, you know. Well, I'm not, I, I don't want you to give away the whole book. There's, there's a couple of things I have to have you, you touch upon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little quick tease here. Um, he's got sections on David Copperfield, Charo, Van Johnson, Melissa Manchester, Nancy Walker, Lauren Bacall, Alan Thicke, Rita Moreno. Oh, my God, Rita Moreno. In, it, she's in a movie called Marlowe where she plays a dancer. And she's yeah. just uh, 13-year-old Tom grew quite fond of that particular part of the videotape. Um, yeah. Barry Manilow, who we might come back to, Linda, I mean, sorry, not Linda, but Donna Summer, Tina Turner, Amy Heckerling, the director of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, John Ritter, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, uh, Shannon Tate's House Party. We've had Manson 
you know, uh, people on the show before who are going to go yeah. crazy for that story. Get the book, Memoir of a Nobody. Just get it. Uh, and, of course, your relationship with uh, Fred and Mary Willard. Um, right. The, the, one of the weird things is I see this chapter on Jim Bailey. And it went right. an entirely different direction than I thought because Jim Bailey is also the name of a stuntman who you can see the YouTube video died doing the dumbest stunt of all time. I'm like, he cannot possibly know that Jim Bailey. And of course, get the book. You will find out completely different story. Um, can you, can you, again, I don't want you to give away the book, but I was in tears over the candid camera chapter. <laughs> uh, you know, first of all, you were on the new candid camera as a writer and right. and I know Alan Funt was great on that show, but I never really liked him. He always seemed really. super pushy to me on that show and kind of a jerk. And he, of course, he always had the hot girl, Joanne Flug or somebody was always his, his little sidekick. And I wasn't that crazy about him. I love the show. Don't get me wrong. But he himself, I didn't like, which made your story all the sweeter to me. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really, I mean, I had heard from Joan Rivers that, you know, he was not a nice man. And I couldn't believe it because I grew up on uh, Candid Camera watching it with uh, Alan Funt and Derwood Kirby. And, you know, he was always the, you know, he was the counterpoint to the piece. In other words, um, if he was this, he brought up funny in the piece because his commentary was so, you know, right on the money. And, and so I was, when I got the job, I was thrilled because this was a childhood hero of mine and I was going to get to work with him. So we go to the meeting and I jammed myself into chair next to, next to, uh, Alan, and um, <clears throat> he says, all right, I've got this thing, and he throws a, a, uh, a life jacket on the table, and he said, what can we do with this? <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, you know, we could do a fashion show, and that's as far as I got out, and he looks at me, and he goes, that's one of the dumbest, stupidest ideas I have ever heard. Where the hell did this kid come from? How stupid do you have to be to come up with an idea like that? And I look over at the other writers who are dying because <laughs> they know how sensitive I am, you know, and how much I love Alan Funt. Well, that was it for me. That was it. I, I hated him from that moment on. And when he is back with her and I was making faces behind his back, trying to get the other writers to laugh, but they wouldn't because they knew that their jobs were on the line. So finally we were sitting there and I had a piece of paper. So I sketched the, um, the Dallas book depository <laughs> and, a, and a limousine. And I put Alan's head in it on the, in the limousine. I sketched it and I slid it across the table to the other two writers who screamed with laughter, screamed. And Alan had just finished uh, making a point and thought that they were <laughs> laughing at what he said 
and they became their he they became his favorite <laughs> and i was like the adopted child with one club foot and 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 so one of the one of the writers on that show was max muchnick who later went on to create and produce will and grace and so max Max was is balding, and at that time I had shoulder length hair, and we had this love hate relationship. And he would say, uh, "You're old. It's over for you. You're never going." You know, teasing, not not being vicious, but you know, just teasing. And we'd laugh about it. And then we shared a, a, a cubicle, and I would tap him on the shoulder, and I'd say, "Hey, Max!" And he'd turn around, and I'd flip my head, and my hair would bounce back and forth. And he he would laugh. I said, I may be old, but I can do this. And he. he... (laughs) On the the subject of Judy Garland, have you heard those tapes? Which tapes? Well, at a certain point in her life, I believe she was over in Paris for some reason, and some people wanted her to write a book of her life. And so what they did was they gave her uh, a tape recorder. Tape recorder. And these are on uh, YouTube. And they're they're fascinating um, because she's not altogether focused on the project, and mm-hmm. she's saying things like, "I don't like speaking into this machine. It's yeah. one of the most ridiculous things you can do. This isn't my business. I don't yeah. know about it. you know." And and they're just really interesting. The other thing that, and I'm, I'm not going to want to ruin the book, the, the Barry Manilow chapter alone is worth the price of admission on this book. Have oh. you heard the Paul Anka? Because all I could think of while I was reading your your chapter on Barry Manilow, there's a tape out that somebody recorded backstage of Paul Anka going berserk, a little crazy on his uh-huh. band. And this is also on YouTube. You can go. I highly recommend you listen to oh, the I, I have heard that. I have heard that. Hey, let's you know, get it together, fellas. The boys wear shirts. This is like sports or anything else. The boys like shirts. And he gets into the individual members, and he's like, hey, you, you've been working for me how long? you got to show up. And he's just really giving it to him. Well, you know, he's, he's known for his ego, you know, because uh, he's very, very short. So he's got the Napoleon complex, I guess. I've never yeah. worked with him. I've never met him. I was in a store with him once. <laughs> well, like everybody yeah. else, you know. They, you, you, in the Beverly Hills, I, I was I was there at the same time. One of the, but, g- uh, the great moments in your book is when you run into Kevin Costner and your eyes meet and you have this right. sort of like, nah, I'm not going to. Well, I'm yeah, just, I, it was like, I swear to you, because he was, he was coming up, the crowd was coming out of the auditorium, and I was going in because I, I was late. And so I was going against the flow. And Kevin Costner and I met eye to eye. And I swear to you, I heard his voice say in my head, don't recognize me. And so I didn't. I, just, I didn't even acknowledge him. I just walked past him. Well, it was one of the strangest, the strangest uh, meetings I've ever had. Well, do you get recognized? Does that happen often? Or I used to get recognized, but you know, I never leave my house, and it's hard to have bus tours come through it. 
So, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I really don't. I'm, I've really become much, um, very much a, a hermit. I, uh, I, I, I love my house, and I have everything in it that I need. So I don't, um, I don't go out much. When I was on television a lot, I would get recognized, especially at airports. And, uh, um, but I'm not anymore, you know, because uh, I haven't done TV in a long time. Well, I, I looked at your IMDb page and I was like, this thing is like one one thousandth of what should be up on here. Uh, not that your IMDb page means anything. I, you know, yeah, obviously right. It, it doesn't. But um, one of the movies that you were in, and if I'm incorrect about this, I will, of course, cut it out of the interview, uh, right. is, is one of my favorite movies ever. And I don't think it's gotten near the recognition that it, it should have. And I know you, you probably didn't have a gigantic role in it or anything, but uh, Rabbit with, Test? With, uh, oh, yes. Uh, with Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was, the, you know, Joan Rivers and I had the same manager for many years. So when Joan was casting her film, I was sent up uh, for, a, for part of one of the doctors. And uh, I think the doctor was Dr. Berkowitz. Uh, and uh, I really had to audition. I didn't get it because I was with the same manager. I got it because she liked my work. And... Um, but everybody who was anybody in comedy is in that film. And it's become, it's really become like a cult classic now. Because Billy Crystal was the star, and you know, Imogene Coco was in it, and uh, I think Paul Lind was in it. And, I mean, everybody was in that film. Well, and it's, at the time, was somewhat controversial. I don't know why, yeah. uh, but it's a brilliant movie. And uh, I just, I knew I had to ask you about that because it's like that. Well, you know, Joan, Joan mortgaged her house to produce that movie. Wow. She, yeah, she, because uh, their house had been paid off and she mortgaged it and, and they, they made that movie and, and, and it's still playing. I mean, not, you know, on TV, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It is. If you haven't seen Rabbit Test, go out there and see it. But, um, you know, uh, the book is. I mean, it is spectacularly funny. It is so insightful. Uh, you know, the observ I can't even encapsulate all the funny things in it because the observational humor is just coming at you like nonstop. Um, I probably insulted you when I said it was like Prell, but I just, that's no. the, 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 the only thing I could think of is it's concentrated. It is so concentrated with funny that, you know, rarely... Sometimes you read a book, and if it's a mystery, you're reading it to get to the ending. Or, you know, if it's a, a you know, nonfiction sort of military or historical thing, you're reading it to get the facts and, and sort of know what happened. This book, you're reading with pleasure, and you're, you're enjoying it while you're reading it, but you're looking forward to the next thing. And you see one of these titles for these vignettes come up, and you're like, oh, my God. God, I can't wait to read this. Like Lauren Bacall comes up and you go, oh my God, Lauren Bacall, this has got to be a good one. And it's, I, I just, I thank you so much for writing this book. I haven't had so oh. much fun reading a book in ages. And it is, I'm just going to say, the funniest book I've ever read. People don't write funny books anymore. Um, 
and I'm not going to compare you to Irma Bombeck, but I mean, it's like the last person I can think of that wrote well, a quote unquote th- funny book. And that's in- it's interesting because I, this month was voted Irma Bombeck's comedy writer of the month at the, the Irma Bombeck society. So that's very funny that you should even bring that up. Yeah, the grass is always greener over the septic tank, you know? Right, right, right. People have written funny autobiographical stories of their life, but, you know, sort of in a droll, amusing, you know, way. Mm -hmm. This book is, you will laugh out loud, and not once, not twice, but constantly through this book. And I don't want to discount the fact that you do reveal very, very personal things about yourself and your life and and so there is actually quite a bit of poignant very heartfelt stuff in the book as well and observations of people that you have known throughout your life that that have had struggles of their own but it is an absolutely amazing book what made you write this book i mean what made you say i want to write this one I, i you know i had so many stories in my head because I, I had done so much in my career, and I never became a star because I never believed in myself. You know, when you have a, a mother who says, I just don't find him funny and doesn't even bother to come to your show, you, it affects you, even though you say it doesn't. And I, I, and I had, you know, one day was looking at my resume, and it's three pages long and all these things, and I said, I, you know, I, I need to write this stuff down before I forget them, you know, before I forget the stories. And so I started, it took me three years. I got up every morning at six or seven o'clock for three years sitting and writing. Now, what I ended up with is 700 pages of material. So I had to split it up into two books. The first book is called Memoir of a Nobody, and the next book I think will be called Another Memoir of of a Nobody. <laughs> well, the, and the story the, of no, you. More... Go ahead, sorry. No, and the it's a continuation of the same kind of stories that, but different stories of different people and different things that happened in different places that I've been to. Well, the story of you taking your mother to Australia is yet another chapter well worth the price of admission. We needn't go into it here because I don't want to give yeah. that one away. Uh, but yeah, it just one of my favorites or oh, losing my tooth in Paris. <laughs> yeah. that was too, it's just, it's, There's there's so many, the Israeli in the Israeli accident is, is just, these are, are just, you know, it's uh, it's beyond Mark Twain. It's, it's, just well, so, that, so the audience, the audience will understand. I had, I was rear-ended by a six, an eighteen-year-old Israeli kid mm-hmm. without insurance, and what happened from that moment on is just hysterical, and that's the story <laughs> that I told. Well, I guess you've got a follow-up to it. Uh, you know, in terms of you just mentioned another memoir of a nobody. Uh, people can get this on Amazon. They can certainly go to Steve Bluestein, also known as Steve Blaustein, sometimes in the tabloids. 
yeah. uh, but uh, they can get it also if you go to the posting for this particular episode of the show there'll be links there where you can go and get this book and and get two of them get one for yourself and get one for somebody that you really really like uh, because it is spectacularly funny I can't say oh, okay. it enough I just can't oh, I, I- I just can't tell you what that means to me. I, I, you know, I, I, because I'm so insecure, I, I, when I hear someone say that, it, it just, it makes me so happy. Uh, because for a comedian, the one thing that we love is to make someone laugh. And so I don't hear people laughing about my book. I just hear about it when they say stuff like you just did. So, but let me tell you for your audience that, the book is on Amazon.com, but it's also available uh, at a much reduced price on eBooks, iBooks, uh, Nook, Barnes and Noble, and Google Play. So it's the, the hardcover. I think is now thirty bucks, but those uh, eBooks are like seven ninety five. So they can get the same exact book at those places. Well, wherever you get it, get it. And, uh, man, I just appreciate your time today. And, um, you know, keep keep writing. Keep writing them. I mean, I'm like I could stop you. But uh, it's, it's, it's just, I'm, it is the funniest book I have ever read. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say that to anybody. And, again, if you, if you think I'm blowing smoke up whatever part of Mr. Bluestein's Anatomy that, that you can imagine. I'm not. Go back, listen to the other episodes. Uh, I, I, I don't say things like that. It's uh, it's the funniest book I've ever read. And uh, I, I really just look forward to every single chapter. It, 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 was, oh. it was awesome. Thank you. Thank You know, I, I have a website, stevebluestein.net, and people can contact me there uh if they if they want to if they want to if they want to give me the finger they can do that too i don't know but <laughs> I, I just thought i'd let people know that steve bluestein bluestein s t e i n and you're the only one who's gotten it right everybody else calls steen it's not steen it's stein well i asked well i'm glad you did but um, it's funny because tomorrow i have a, a meeting with someone whose last name is Goldstein. And I said to him, sorry, you're pronouncing your name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's in your book too. You, you outline the proper pronunciation in your book as well. So, right. Right. Uh, you know, well, there's a real someplace of me on television, correcting David, uh, uh, John Davidson and Dinah Shore and Merv Griffin and all these people pronouncing my name wrong. And, uh, uh, and then one of the, at one of the hotels, they pre-record the introduction, you know, and so they pre-recorded my name wrong at the introduction. And it so bothered me that every night when they were just when just before I was going to get on stage, I would put my fingers in my ear and go, la, 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 <laughs> so I wouldn't hear them pronouncing it wrong. Oh, man. Okay. Well, get the book, Memoir of a Nobody. Steve, thanks so much for spending the time. Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the interview. 
The following is a public service announcement from The Tom Gully Show. Due to recent events, we are compelled to pass along this warning for listeners of The Tom Gully Show. Tragically, over the past few weeks, a pattern of alarming occurrences has befallen listeners who have failed to support the program via social media. For example, a Margaret D. from Indianapolis was struck down with chronic, incurable, sudden flatulence after ignoring an opportunity to like the Tom Gully Show Facebook page. Similarly, a Chuck L. of Richardson, Texas, was horrified to find that a sphincter opening had replaced his mouth after plagiarizing a Twitter posting from the show. A Marjorie H. of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, passed on a chance to join the TomGullyShow.com via Google+, and her dog, Mimsy, subsequently exploded. And both Zachary J. and Ted R. of Doylestown, Pennsylvania, sent nasty emails to Tom at the TomGullyShow.com and subsequently saw their genitalia blacken, shrivel, and fall off in the shower. Don't let this happen to you. Like the Tom Gully Show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Atomic Palooka, and join and subscribe with links at thetomgullyshow.com. Email the program via tom at thetomgullyshow.com, and when you do, good things will happen. Thank you. The preceding has been a public service announcement from The Tom Gully Show. like to thank Steve Bluestein for being on the show. You can get his book, Memoir of a Nobody, and we suggest you get it immediately. It is an incredible book. Uh, pick it up on Barnes & Noble, Nook. You heard Steve rattle off the million places you can get it. You could also go to his website, which is stevebluestein.net. Bluestein is spelled B-L-U-E-S-T-E-I-N. You can also get it on the posting for this episode of the podcast at thetomgullyshow.com in the event that you're picking up this podcast from one of the 27 places that I haven't really authorized it to be distributed from but don't have the time or energy to prevent that. You know, um, folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here. Uh, we'd like to thank Steve once more. He is a great guy. It's been an absolute pleasure not only chatting with him on Facebook, but getting to spend an hour with him during the interview. Uh, just a very, very, very funny man. We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully show. Not me. Okay, not me. Please, not me. But the show itself on Facebook. You got to go to the show page that says the Tom Gully show, okay? And then you got to click like on the page. You can't like one of my postings. Much as I appreciate that, that's not the thing, you know? Of course, you can always go to the TomGullyShow.com. That's where you can find out everything about the show. There's the Tom Gully show store. That's right, the store. It's back up. 
So if you're on a laptop or a desktop, go to the top of the page. You'll see something that says store, click it, and you will, well, you'll unlock the doors to a world of top quality name brand merchandise that you'll be glad to own. Uh, and it helps me fund this. And this is the most just spectacularly underfunded program in the history of programs. Okay. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on iTunes for free, because if it's free, it's for me. Follow us on Twitter at Atomic Palooka. And I keep saying, somebody's got to email me or Facebook message me, and I will explain the whole thing behind the Atomic Palooka. Um, that's going to pretty much do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I got to go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, the late, great Jay Johnson brings us in at the top of the show with the Truth Wagon. Go to Jay Johnson Music. Dot com and uh, get yourself some of the music that Jay was kind enough to leave us. And each night we take you out with Russell Alexander and the Hitman Blues Band. Go to hitmanbluesband.com. There's a bunch of stuff there about the band and their schedule. And if you go to hitmanbluesband.net, sign up for their mailing list, which, man, let me tell you something. They do not bother you with this mailing list. You get maybe, maybe six of them a year. Okay, they're not, they're not one of those people you sign up for the mailing list and it's like every hour till you die. No, that's not them. You get all these great free blues songs, which uh, these are some killer songs. Uh, also, shout out to Joanne Alexander. She's the uh, um, photographer S that's married to Russell and she stopped in on the show this week. So um, thanks to her as well. Anyway, that's going to do it. We will see you next time. Well, the bug can't lift a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat, a raccoon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night while you hold your baby tight. But he don't want you You can see it in his eyes From the way he tells you lies But he don't want you He stays at work too long And you beg him to come home But he don't want to Girl, I'd be so good